Okay, let's just stop that because that was terrible, terrible. I don't know if it was bad for you as well, everyone, but uh, yeah. Hey, but that's that's um that's the countdown done. Yeah, that's the countdown to Armchair Producers, everyone. Welcome to the show, episode 85. I am one of your hosts, George Terran, alongside the man, the myth, the yep, one of those as well, the rocket man, Mr. Travis Croft. How are you, sir? I'm fine and dandy. Uh, We are moving into Melbourne warmer months. Slowly Um, but surely, yes. Slowly but surely. uh, Potentially, maybe one day getting a little closer to not being... Locked down and being allowed, to, for me at least, being allowed to go more than five k's from home. You're not, you're not locked down. Um, no, I'm not. I'm a lucky man. You're allowed to go to cafes and stuff, but maybe, maybe not. Um, we're not getting our hopes up. Yeah, but um, how? I mean, have you, have you got any like expected or hoped for date that you're going back to work at all? Well, I'm technically still working. I, I, um, I mean, like in, back into the oh, office. Next year sometime, probably. I wouldn't. Oh. Um, I don't have any inside track, despite the fact that I work for the Department of Health. Um, but, shit, I mean, I wouldn't expect to be back at work this year, not in the office. That's fair. That's um, fair. It, I feel like we're going to be extraordinarily, I mean, because you think about it, we're not going to have, so for those who are unsure, Melbourne has been in stage four, Restrictions, which basically means I'm not allowed more than five kilometers from my home. Mm. Uh, and until a couple of weeks ago, I wasn't allowed out after nine o'clock. Before that, I, I was a, a curfew of eight o'clock for a while. So, yep. um, because of um, a grand total of seven cases today, and I think about 130 active cases. So, yeah. if we look at the UK, I think there are 17,000 cases or so, if not more, like um, it's going nuts in Europe again. Yeah. Uh, so, um, but yeah. So technically, I think this weekend was supposed to be a the first step down in those restrictions back to COVID normal, which we're going to get mm-hmm. sick of. Um, but uh, that's probably not going to happen, or much less than we hoped was going to happen this weekend. They might give us a, a bone, like oh, you can, yeah, you can go six k from home. Yay! You uh, can see one other person at a one mile distance. Exactly. Yeah. Via phone, they have like a tin can or something, as long as the tin can is sanitized. We are uh, initiating carrier pigeon. So, yeah, um, I, I would be very surprised if, like, I mean, um, that, that that's going to put a push back two or three weeks now, one would think. Mm. That pushes the other thing back two or three weeks, which is supposed to be the end of November. So we're yeah. already at Christmas before we really start to get, you know, anything remotely starting to get back to sort of, you know, normal and that kind of front. So yeah, I don't, I don't, understand. I don't, I can't see in my world being sent back into an office when there's no great need for that to actually happen anytime soon. Yeah. I, I can't see much actually changing between now and the end of the year, honestly, because I think that government are also very, very aware and probably scared of the Christmas rush in retail. Absolutely, and I think they don't want people locked down over Christmas. Yeah, exactly. I think, I think they're able to say, hey, yes, we, because we had those hard restrictions before, you can actually go and see your friends and family on Christmas. You can, you can leave the city for a change. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, which should be nice. Um, so we aren't a current affairs podcast. No, we are not. We are not, but, I mean, it's kind of difficult to talk about. It. It's, it's interesting, though, a lot of the stuff we have talked about over the last six months or so, because it's been about six months now, mm-hmm. has actually come to pass. So I don't know if you saw the news, but James Bond has been bumped again to yeah. April next year. There's talk that 
maybe Wonder Woman will go straight to streaming, which is yeah. There's unfair. there's been huge amounts of the big big releases all been sliding into 2021. And, Marvel, uh, I'm putting out anything this year that's all slid into next year. Yeah. Um, I know the one that you and I were most excited about coming to America too. <laughs> <laughs> that's coming to amazon right amazon now apparently so yeah. um i i reviewed um coming to america one for my one of my other podcasts this week and you look up the sequel and it says it's coming out in december and then you jump on jump on um youtube there's no trailer and you're nope. like well that's <laughs> something, doesn't it like either it's a giant piece of crap or it's not coming it's out it's going to be the sleeper hit of the year they apparently paid 125 million dollars for it wow Okay. According to Joe Blow today. So um, that's a lot. Yeah. A lot of people to watch it. Um, Yeah. uh, I was surprised at that cost, considering Eddie Murphy isn't the drawer he was 32 years ago. No, no, he's not. And, you know, but to be fair, I mean, the last big movie to come out of the cinema was Tenet. And it didn't do so well. Didn't do so well. Yeah. I mean, it still drew good numbers, but not at all where it needs to be. It's Those are good numbers, all things considered. Mm. Um, like, I would love to see it. I would but, love to see Tenet. I really wanted yeah. to see it in IMAX because yeah. this Chris Nolan actually shoots some of his stuff for yeah. IMAX. Uh, yeah, exactly. I, and I saw, the, I saw the first five minutes, I always say, I saw the first five minutes of it last year before um, uh, The Rise of Skywalker, and it mm. was the best thing I saw that whole night. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So it's only got in here. So I was like, I was psyched. I'm, I'm really annoyed that uh, when are we ever going to I mean, what's going to happen, you know, in this city, right? I guess cinemas reopen, at least I'll have something to stick in there. Um, yeah. in there being a tenant. But I mean, so this is all the kind of things we've been talking about for the last six months in this session. Since it's talk about our topic of interest being film. Yeah. Is that they have stopped production on so much stuff over mm. the last six to seven, six, seven, eight months that, the stuff that they've kicked forward, your James Bonds, your Black Widows, let's say March, April next year, they start to get enough cinemas open for it to be profitable. Mm. Maybe they dump that cinemas in April, but there's going to be a lot less products available to sell next Amer- next Northern summer. Well, that's the thing. I don't know whether that's going to be the case anymore because, you know, there are movies and TV shows that are ramping up production and filming and things like that. Like Batman, the new Batman movie is back filming. after yes, Robert Pattinson though. Uh, no, he's back on the set now. Okay. He, is, he has clear, cleared the quarantine and all that stuff. But, um, yeah, I'm wondering if they are purposefully doing this so that it kind of covers that gap because, you know, they're, they're, at least there are some things cooking. Um, you know, they, they can say, oh, it's not financially viable to put it in. But Bond and Wonder Woman, just are two off the top of my head, there can't be any more post-production stuff needed to happen on those movies. I mean, Wonder Woman was supposed to come out last year. I guess they're technically aiming for an Australian release in like the end of December, like the last week of December, but yeah. that's not that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And and I'm sorry, a big tempo movie like that, <laughs> they're never ever going to find the money worthwhile to do their world premiere in Australia. The cinema here is not big enough to warrant that. Exactly. So you're going to have to, I mean, really, yeah. you're right. You're going to be waiting for North American cinemas yeah. to be open, enough of them to be open to, to, to have things. It's, it's, yeah. it's, you're right. I mean, it would be interesting to see if they can rush something like Batman out in time. Like if you're filming now, mm. it's October. 
post-production special effects and get it out by the next next American summer, which is when it would normally land. It would normally land, yeah, you know, July true. July August next year if that was yeah. you know if it was if it was scheduled for next year. Yeah. Uh, but that's all. That's a quick turnaround. Um, well, I mean, like th- 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 there are movies that have proven that they can do it at least on a financial level. Questionable, six, uh, you know, quality of it, but uh, the Jumanji sequel that got turned around and um, put into production and post production super quick. I think it was in the space of a year. I mean, I, I wonder the special effects houses probably aren't run off their feet right now. Um, exactly, so that that might be the case, but you can imagine. Uh, a Matt Reeves Batman movie lands in July, August mm. next year, and cinemas opened in May. Let's say that would kill. It would kill because a it's like how much competitions are going to have like none, not much, and it's the first movie we've been able to, where people will have been able to go back to the theater to see mm. in a year, over a year in some parts of the world, and proper you know, yeah, actual new movie like yeah, uh, yeah. my friends in California. Are always telling me you're going to be the movies this week, and it's like Jaws, Jurassic Park. Yeah, you know, it's not all classic movies, but there is something to be said about something that's new. new. So it yeah. would absolutely destroy. Um, I mean, it would be, it, well, theoretically, it would be interesting to see if you know people feel safe to go back to the mm-hmm. movies again. Um, yeah. And you know, what if they have to socially distance? If they, I assume if they have to socially distance at the theater, but mm-hmm. they're not opening the theater. I mean, like, can they open a theater? Well, that was one of the one of the first things that I pointed out um, way back. Before, I think before even Stage Four started, I saw that Hoyts, the cinema chain in Australia, they were um, advertising social distance seating, where they were making sure that everyone was sitting with one's empty seat between them. So even if they did open up and they're still acting, either the cost of cinema tickets is just going to go up because they can't get as many bums on seats. Or the cin- the cinema expectation and the the expectations of what they're going to draw in for the next year or whatever is going to be yep it's we're cutting it in half because that's literally all the people that can fit in those screens. Or do they have twice the sessions? Even then, they might not. But I think that what we'll probably end up seeing is if things control and if there is a movie that gets the timing just right to come out like a month and a half or two months after kind of the the lift is up on a lot of the world i can imagine disney re-releasing mulan releasing um black widow and a lot of these movies that they're touting as the um disney subscription special uber thing they'll release them in cinemas because that's what they can do and I mean, I have a couple of ideas running through my head at the moment. On the one hand, mm. if cinemas, some cinemas will be open, not many, mm. but if some cinemas open, that that I mean, and not enough, then Disney are going to sit on a Black Widow. They're going to oh, sit. Yeah. Warner are going to sit on a Batman until it's the right time for them. Mm. You know, um, does that mean there's a lot of independent, smaller stuff? ends up getting cinema releases around the world that we yeah. probably ended up going straight to a streaming service or got my new art house releases in New York and never seen anywhere else or festival yeah. festival screenings and nothing else because yeah. cinemas around the world are going to be short of content. Yeah. But I kind of at the same time, so I think there's going to be a window to that, I suspect. At the other end of that, though, in that world we're talking about where a cinema has to open socially distanced, 
Mm. And I think they can't ask for double the price of a ticket because unemployment's going to be eight, nine, ten percent. So people yeah. can't pay it. So what the other alternative, like I said, is they potentially have more screenings. And you obviously you are limited to how many screens you can have by how many rooms you have and cleaning and stuff will be important. Mm. So does that mean that in a world of socially distant cinemas, you have even less choice? So a cinema just has Batman and it has Black Widow and they just run them all day, every every back-to-back sessions yeah. for, from in that you know, extended hours maybe, and they just run those two movies for, you know, two and a half weeks before they swap them out for whatever new comes in. And right. the, little, the little stuff just doesn't get a look in because you've got to maximise your profit and Batman and Marvel and a, and, a Warner and a DC film are probably, you know, the things that might actually do it. Yeah, maybe, maybe. It's um, it's an interesting time that we live in, and it's fun to speculate. That is true. That is very, uh, very on, true. On a more happy note, what yes. do you make of the uh, announcement? I think this is very cool. There's mm. an announcement going around at the moment that uh, both Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire will star in the next uh, Spy- Marvel Spider-Man film. Hmm. I have so many thoughts on this, purely because... Um, Spider-Man as a franchise, going all the way back to when uh, Sam Raimi was in charge of them. They have always, always had this desperate desire to put more characters into their movies. And, you know, it's one of the reasons why Spider-Man 3 was such a disaster. Um, it's one of the reasons why the Amazing Spider-Man series stopped because they were just so desperate to get to the Sinister Six because they wanted that really cool thing. And now they've had two successful new Spider-Mans where they were building up the world and they were able to latch it on to the MCU so it felt even bigger than it actually was. And now... Now they're saying that the past three live-action Spider-Man actors are coming in as well as Michael Keaton is rumoured to be coming back as Vulture and they've got three or four of the Sinister Six lined up. So like, okay, that's a lot. That's a, that's a big, big amount for one movie which has very specifically focused for the first and the second one to be about the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. And they dropped this, is it a, uh, is it a hint? Is it a hoax of the multiverse stuff, which turns out it's not a hoax. It's a real thing because of the name of the next Dr. Strange movie. But oh, they always, tr- they always try so hard to put more of this stuff in when, They've proven in the last two Spider-Man movies with Tom Holland, they don't need to go outlandish to tell an interesting, entertaining Spider-Man movie. I'm just worried they're going to try and put too much into it. That's a fair point. They certainly did yeah. overcook. Um, well, both. I didn't. I know you liked the first Amazing Spider-Man film. I didn't like either of them. Mm. Um, I, but they certainly overcooked the, the last Tobey Maguire Spider-Man film, and it was kind of just a mess. Mm-hmm. Um I think the, what I've heard is that the idea was that Garfield and McGuire would be more cameo roles mm. uh, rather than uh, a bigger part. But um, I guess what gives me confidence is mm. is the Into the Spider-Verse film. True, because true. they nailed the fucking shit out of that. Lord Miller 
mm-hmm. nailed it. And there was a lot of going on, a lot of going on in that film. There were a lot of characters, a lot mm-hmm. of Spider Man. You're right; they had to, they focused on the one main villain being Kingpin, but um, there was a lot going on in that little film. So if you can get that right in an animated film, uh, is there? Is it necessarily going to be a bad thing if they try and get it right in a live action film? That's that's entirely fair. My counter to that is, as always, they've done it in a successful animated movie. Do they really need to do it again? And okay. so soon, and they're doing a sequel to Into the Spider Verse as well. So it's kind of all right. You're doing a lot of Spider Man here money people buy yeah. spider-man shit like people are buying that marvel avengers game on playstation because they've got the, it's a, a spider-man character is exclusive to playstation that's true um, that's true apparently people are buying i can't i don't understand why people are lining up for next-gen consoles i don't get it but they are <laughs> and one of the main drawers of course is the new spider-man game on playstation 5 so mm-hmm. um yeah, look, I mean, it's a fair point. I was a little surprised to see that they want to bring back Jamie Foxx's Electro. Um, yeah. And yeah. I'm like, I, he was awful in that movie, in that movie. Everything about that movie was awful. Um, but, yeah, look, I, I thought it was a cool idea. It mm. seems to be a uh, flavor of a month, though, isn't it? Because we had that story a little while ago mm-hmm. that um, that uh, Michael Keaton was going to be in the Flash movie and potentially yeah. Ben Affleck as well. And- yeah. You know, because yeah, because uh, uh, the rumors are that the Flash movie is going to be all about the the DC's version of the multiverse, um, and bringing in all these other different variations of characters. Bloody bloody blah, blah, blah. They even did it. They even introduced it on the Flash TV show. Ezra Miller's Flash turned up in that. Um, so it's going to be very. It's there always seems to be that moment where two rival studios come up with basically the same story and release them similar times like deep impact and armageddon um there's there was those two truman capote movies that came out at the same time there yeah was- they always seem to be combating things and there's now two multiverse movies potentially coming out at the same time because or rushing through production because of covid it's and they both wear weird. red yeah it's 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 weird and one, and and they potentially could both have Michael Keaton in them, which is even weirder. Yeah, Michael gets around, doesn't he? He's the uh, town bicycle of the uh, comic book universe. Um, yeah, but you know, he's he's a damn good actor, and I'm happy to see him in anything. So, um, he's as long as he's getting paid, he's as you say, he's a he's a fine actor, and I'm glad to see right. more of him these days. As opposed damn to right, his sort of career nadir, you know, from about what the mid '90s through till Birdman, he was in. Sweet fuck all, really. Not much, yeah. He was on his ranch. <laughs> uh, he probably is just living off his Batman money, right? I mean, he Hell was yeah. probably paid pretty well to do that for the second time around, if I recall correctly. Uh, um, so after the success of the first one. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, anyway, that was the and if you might, What is your favourite Michael Keaton film, though? Ooh. Ooh, that's really tough. My mind just instantly went to Beetlejuice. Well, so, I mean, it's certainly one of his most memorable roles. It's such a... I hope it doesn't. It doesn't need to happen. It's fine. But it was just such an amazing turn by him. He was fucking awesome. I don't think that the movie is anywhere near his best movie that he's been involved in. Um, but 
he was just so transformative and different in it. I loved it. Really loved it. For me, it's the founder. That is good, yeah. I really, really liked him in that. I think he was um, – you sort of stand back and go, the guy has great range as an actor. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess maybe it's not such a big uh, departure from what he can normally do, but I just love that movie. It's weird, isn't it? It's a movie about the guy invented McDonald's. I shouldn't be something I enjoy that much, but I it's do. It's an interesting story, though. It's a compelling story, and it's brilliantly told. It's really wonderfully controlled. Um, I also really like Birdman. I actually couldn't make it all the way through that. I like that. Uh, other than that, obviously, I mean, for me, you, you can't. Uh, he, he would. I, he's still probably my favorite Batman. Yeah, and he's everyone's favorite Mister Mum. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> mm, mm, mm. <laughs> anyway, so you mentioned a guy in that conversation, a fellow named Tim Burton. I did, yes. And uh, it's a bit of a segue, but I saw it. And I'm going for it, I tell you. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Um, uh, he is, the, of course, the, the well, not the director, the, but I guess the, the creative the, juice, the, the, the man behind uh, this week's chain movie, mm-hmm. of course, is the uh, 1993 stop motion masterpiece, Night Day Before Christmas. Yes. Uh, now, this year, this is really a. A peace offering from me. Mm-hmm. Um, I had the choice after after um, Charles play last week, and then leading up to this, I had both insulted George's one of George's favorite movies in the Brothers Bloom, <laughs> and I had the gall to then take us from that. After insulting that movie, I then had the gall to slide sideways using a very small Rachel Vies uh, role in mm-hmm. Death, Death Machine which I think would probably make potentially the top three of the worst films we've done on this show. And we've done this show for seven years now. Yes. Um, So I felt a mere culpa was Mm -hmm. in order. And so despite the fact I don't like musicals, I thought I would follow uh, our friend Chris Sarandon into uh, The Nightmare Before Christmas. Mm Mm-hmm. You keep on saying that you don't like musicals, and yet there are so many out there that you enjoy. But there are, if you say, like, you know, um, <laughs> there are hundreds of musicals. The fact that I like five. <laughs> <laughs> you have your select style of musicals that you like. Like, for me, I don't generally like musicals, but I like ones that involve swearing and usually uh, beating the shit out of Nazis in some way, shape, or form. Potentially running them over. Yeah. Um yeah, that the Blues Brothers is one I liked. Mm-hmm. I didn't mind Chicago, the uh, Richard Gere, Rene Zellweger. No, 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 no. That is horrible, and we will never talk of it again. I, I, I kind of <laughs> liked it. Um, and uh, Come From Away, I saw that. I liked that. Yes. Uh, Avenue Q was fun. Um, yeah. But this one, yeah. Um, I, I like this film for purely technical reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, you watch the the animation is... To say it's beautiful, I think, is underselling it. Like one hundred percent, it's like it's it's breathtaking, mm-hmm. uh, it's and it is art of. I mean, they were um, had a team of a hundred people animating this film for around about three years. So that is an insane amount of work that went into uh, producing. The, uh, the required animation to get this to look the way it does. I mean, for a frame of a fra- one second of film, it can take something like 
to read 50 or 60 different actual movements of a character. Mm-hmm. Um, so for a second of film, and this film goes for, you know, your year and a half at a time, like, I'm sorry, 116 minutes, so an hour and 16 minutes, I should say. Um, and I just look at that and you just go, wow. Um, I, I grew up watching films that were heavy on stop-go animation, films um, like Sinbad. And mm-hmm. Jason the Golden, and the Argonauts. Jason and the Argonauts and that kind of thing, which is Ray Harryhausen. Yep. Who is kind of, um, if you don't know who that is, Google him. He's basically the, the godfather of stop-go animation. Yep. And, and a massive inspiration, I, 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 from what I understand, behind the artists who, who made this film. Mm-hmm. Um, and but those films weren't all stop-go animation. They were, like, live action mixed with stop-go animation. Yeah. And it was, you, you, I mean, it probably wasn't huge chunks. It probably, you know, not even a third of a film involved stop-go animation. So mm-hmm. the amount of work that he had to do, well, as good as it was, there was nowhere near the level of work that they had to to make this. And the entire thing being animated in the stop go, mm-hmm. I nobody was stupid enough to be doing it in mm-hmm. in the early nineties. And the only reason I can imagine they got the okay to do it is because of Batman. Probably, yeah, yeah. That made all the monies in yeah. in, in eighty nine ninety, mm-hmm. um, and that was where, and of course Beetlejuice probably helped as well because that came out before Batman. Yeah. Say. Um, so two very big hits in a row there for um, for, for Burton, uh, and he was working on Batman Returns. Mm-hmm. I have to imagine that, that played into them, someone at Disney signing off and going, yes, you can have a stupid amount of money to mm-hmm. make an animated stop-go film, which nobody made, mm-hmm. about Halloween characters invading Christmas. like A poem that Tim Burton wrote. That's, yeah. Yeah, it's, it, it, none of it makes sense, and yet... The whole film itself is just truly delightful. Truly, it's it's a delight to kind of watch as a child. I remember watching this as a child. It's still beautiful going back to it even today because every single one of the characters, which it's so, it seems to be so much harder to capture the lightning in a bottle of genuine personality in uh, computer-generated characters versus stop-motion animation. Um, you think of all of the characters going into all the creatures, the the Gorgon and the Kraken and the skeletons and things like that from Ray Harryhausen's movies. They had so much character and they they were alive in their in their creation. You think about the Terminator when it's just the frame and it's it's a you know stomping forwards. It looks menacing and terrifying there's so much character and personality you think of this movie you think of Coraline you think of Kubo and the two strings all these stop motions there's so much love and even going into um like the the Nick Park stuff of Wallace and Gromit and Chicken Run there's because it's literally hand molded it feels like more more life and more energy has been put into them versus you know, the animation that Toy Story and Pixar have created is phenomenal, but it feels like it's almost like there's a, like a, like a, a glass pane between me and the, and that character. So often it's like, I love watching it go, but I don't, I, I feel like I can see the magic there. And I, I know that it's an illusion. Whereas watching Jack Skellington, um, just delighting in the snow the first time he goes to Christmas land. It's sort of like, holy shit. Yes. I, I feel that. I, I feel that unfiltered. It's 
It's wonderful. It's, I don't um, know why. I think the f- the thing there is it, it looks too good. CG computer generated. It's too clean. It's too perfect. Mm, yeah. It's too smooth. Um, and I think that's the problem with CGI period these days. I mean, some people use it better than others. Yeah. Um, you know, I, if you look at like one of the most CGI heavy films of the 90s was Titanic. Mm-hmm. But the way James Cameron used it was so skillful mm-hmm. and subtle in a lot of ways. Most of the time you didn't notice what you were watching with CGI. Yep. Except for a propeller guy, um, <laughs> you know. But like, it, it, I find I you, you watch some of these films at, from older older films. So um, I've been watching some stuff from the eighties for some of my other podcasts occasionally. Mm-hmm. Not the Graveyard Shift; that was awful. Um, but um, and you see actual genuine like legit. Oh, we were watching Child Play last week. The, the scene where. The character fell out of a window and it smashed into that truck. That was a practical special effect. Yeah. I think they filled a, a, a mannequin with cement. <laughs> to, get, to get the crash. Hell yeah. Um, and it looked amazing. Yeah. Um, and then actually I watched a film on the weekend for uh, for King for a Day called Cat's Eye. That will be coming out soon, people. That episode. <laughs> um, and as a character falls off a building and that, and they use some very cheap special effects. Mm-hmm. And it looked fucking awful. Um so, and I mean, even if the special effects have been good, sometimes they're just too clean, too polished, too smooth. Mm-hmm. A practical special effect would just do it for you. Like, a, you know, um, you go back to someone like Jean de Bont, who made Speed back in the 90s. Big fan yeah. of practical special effects. Mm-hmm. If it was going to be a, you know, if you go back to Twister, he would drop an actual fucking tractor in front of Bill Paxton and Howell Hunt because it looks better that way. Yeah. And, you know, you have a combine harvester actually explode in front of him. Well, that's that's one of the things about Tenet, going back to that briefly. I mean, um, Chris Nolan actually blew up an airship because it looked better and it actually saved money versus having it CGI'd, which is crazy. But I think it, it applies here as well. As good as yeah. you say, as good as the Pixar stuff is, it has its appeal. Mm. But I don't know if it ever has that tactile nature mm. to feel real because it's not real, whereas... Mm. And these characters are real in the sense they are physical things that mm-hmm. fair plasticine, I guess, um, but they, they are actual real things. And you just yeah. can't really duplicate that with computer, at least not yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would like to call out, I mean, for one thing, it always sort of trips people. I mean, it tripped me up at the start here as well, is this is not a Tim Burton film. No. In the sense he did not. It does say Tim Burton's A Nightmare Before Christmas. And you, you put it, he was the creative juice behind it. He's the man behind the screen. He wrote the screenplay sort of i think he wrote, mm-hmm. he wrote the original um poem, poem. it's mm-hmm. based on a story he gets a story and characters credit on this mm. um so not a screenplay credit my bad but it was actually directed by henry selick mm-hmm. who's in the game a name that doesn't roll off people's tongues but you mentioned one of his films a moment ago he's the man behind Coraline, mm-hmm. which i haven't seen but i know was very highly praised that's great uh, he also um, directed James and the Giant Peach, mm-hmm. which is a wonderful uh, adaptation of uh, one of my favorite Roald Dahl books. Yes. Um, so he, uh, Monkey Bone as well. I don't know. Is that actually a stop go animation? That, that's a crappy Brendan Fraser film. My bad. <laughs> Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Um, it's, it's a bizarre sort of like it's it's got animation in it, but it's not like – you know, it's it, like Henry Selleck um, actually also helped produce the animals, the stop motion animals in the Life, uh, Life Aquatic with Steve Sisu from Wes Anderson. 
Uh, he is mm. a man who understands animation. I would say yes. that much. Stop go animation, uh, uh, in particular, considering Nightmare Before Christmas, James and the Giant Peach, and Coraline are three of the best stop go animated films you would ever want to see. He seems to have steered clear of it for a little while. Um, then again, if I'd had to work with stop go animation that much in my life, I think three of them, three of them's enough. <laughs> um, exactly. You need an insane amount of patience to to uh, to to get to get by with all that. Um, Kaiser, what an Oscar! That's a tragedy. Um, the the screenplay was written, uh, not written by Burton. It was written by Caroline Thompson, and mm-hmm. uh, the adaptation was done by Michael McDowell. Uh, Caroline Thompson did uh, some other Burton works, including Edward Scissorhands, mm-hmm. Corpse Bride, and um, Michael McDowell worked on Beetlejuice. Mm-hmm. If I'm not mistaken, and so there, uh, there's, there's a lot of the Tim Burton troupe here, and you can see yeah. it very clearly in the production. It is, and his people, his people turn up in in the actual voice cast as well. Yeah, uh, in that Paul Rubens who work with him quite regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Danny Elfman does, of course, the score, but mm-hmm. also does the uh, Jack Skellington's singing voice. Mm-hmm. So um, Chris Sarandon, who is our link to Charles Play, does Jack Skellington's speaking yep. voice and apparently it was higher because his speaking voice kind of sounded like danny elfman's singing <laughs> voice um and you're like you know what you take what you can get um, absolutely so it's it's his, some of his usual usual crew in mm. here what do you do you like the songs from this film i enjoy them a lot there's a lot of uh fond memories about them i used to perform some of them for like at school uh you know, talent shows and things like that, which was always fun. Um, and they are nice and catchy. They don't stick around too long. Um, even the the romantic number between Sally and Jack, it's still sweet without it being too, oh, my God, okay, just get on with it, get on with it. It's It, it never kind of falls into that Disney princess kind of element of, of the romance and, you know, airing more on the side of the grotesque definitely fits with me as well but um i was just so enamored with the variety of style of musical numbers in there like the opening songs um um to what's this what's this to um mr Roogie boogie's song and things like that it's that they kind of feel different and again they're they're ex- extensions of those characters rather than just hey we got a famous um, composer in to write these songs and aren't they very much like all of their other work? This has some of that typical uh, Danny Elfman kind of jauntiness to them and the sort of like twists and sort of like turning of, sort of like, oh, that that's cute, but with a with an ugly twist to it somehow. But still, it was ver- all of them were very much in character. It's a, it's a bit like, you know, they haven't gone out and hired Randy Newman. Yeah, and, you know, <laughs> and found out that like, yeah, you know, he's written ten. I've written ten songs for the film, and they all sound exactly like every other song for the film, and every other song I've ever composed for every other film I've ever written for. Yep. But I won Oscars for them, so you're gonna fucking put them in the movie. Yep. yep. You know, um, Danny Elfman's a real. Oh, I'm gonna get in trouble for this. Uh, he's a real musician. I know, Randy. <laughs> 
I know Randy Newman does tour, and there are people out there who would pay a great deal of money to see him That's play. Fair. Um, he's won two Oscars. Um, so, you know, good for him. He doesn't um, tickle your ivories, though. I guess I just find him a I, I found him. I find him very twee, sort of cheesy, you know, um, uh, and Danny Elfman hasn't won an Oscar yet, and that's tragic. Um, but I find him, yeah, very clunky and cheesy and sort mm-hmm. of folksy, which I guess kind of works for for the Toy Story films. Mm-hmm. But um, at the same time, you know, oh, my God, he wrote a new one for Toy Story 4, and you're like, but did he? <sighs> or did he just like cut and paste the you know, the one from <laughs> yeah, you know, like you know, it's like that that meme. It's like, yeah, sure you can copy my homework, but just make sure it looks different enough that nobody notices, you know. Um What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna play this in F minor instead of flat F. And backwards or something, you know, like <laughs> Um so look, no, no, this is not a uh, Randy Newman disc, I just find you know stuff kind of very samey. Daniel. But that said, though, I will say in the first five minutes of this, I'm like, did Danny Elfman write this music? <laughs> of course he did. It of just, course. It just, he has a very noticeable a signature sound uh, to his scores. And it's a bit like I imagine now being a huge Trent Reznor fan, that when I see a score sometimes, you're like, it's what you watch, but I'm like, that's right. Trent Reznor did the soundtrack for this, didn't he? Yeah. Very noticeable sort of style of music, but you're right. There are the songs are, are, are noticeably go through a few different styles, especially the the Oogie Boogie song was actually I felt really stood out for me. Yeah, as being very different to everything yeah. else Absolutely. in the rest of the soundtrack. And what a wonderful character he Oogie Boogie is, by the way. Um, I, I kind of felt like he was the the, uh, the my takeaway character. I don't think I noticed him quite so much before. Mm. Is there's especially just the construction of him because he does his character looks like a Hessian bag, and the fact that it is constantly moving and wriggling is wonderful. And then when the seams go on his character and all of those stop motion characters, that must have been a nightmare to create. But my god, it was worth the effort. And uh, who who did the voice of Mister Boogie Boogie? Uh, Ken Page, great work. Great work. Uh, it was creepy. It was friendly, but there was that sinisterness to to every single thing that he said, even in his song where he's like, I'm Mr. Oogie Boogie. It's still kind of a, a, a threatening pomposity to it, which is just great. And they did a live uh, Nightmare Before Christmas concert. Actually, that would have been something to have been, have been wow. at. Um, that would have been cool, yes. And um, I, I know uh, most of them seem to have come back and actually done stuff. So um, I guess then again, that was the other thing I sort of noticed in here that sort of made me um, sort of sort of stood out to me about the film was if this film was made today, it would be wall to wall famous people. Yeah, you'd have fucking Beyonce, Taylor Swift to be given a character. Yeah, Lizzo would have a character. Probably Lady Gaga would be in there somewhere. Bradley mm-hmm. Cooper would probably drop in and do something really dull. Um, you know, <laughs> snide swipes from Travis Croft tonight, ladies and gentlemen. You, you know, like um, it would be, it would be. You got to have names, right? If you're making a film like this today, it would be chock-a-block, like cats. It would be like cats. James yeah. Corden would be Rebel, Rebel Wilson to be in there doing something ridiculous, you know. 
Um, just they would have probably put the cast cats in something like this. And so, it's the sort of movie where every actor who has either been uh, either lost out on an Oscar or a younger actor who is gunning for that Oscar in their career, they go, "Yep, I need to put my voice to an animated movie somewhere, and I need to have that singing role as well because I want to show that I can do anything." And you know, it, if it made sense or not, whether they are good actual voice actors or not. Like I haven't seen Cats that I, you know, I, yeah. I know I know well enough to stay clear of that one. Yeah, um, yeah. But it, I feel like this film actually benefits from the fact that a Burton hired people he likes to work with, which yep. he always does. Mm-hmm. So I would tend to think you work better with directors you actually like working with. Yeah, uh, and he has an idea of what these actors can and can't do. And he would have, you know, he'd write a character like, I want Paul Rubens back. That's exactly what he likes to do and he'll do that well. But he also has people who, because I don't know many of these people, I'm guessing most of them actually have, this is what they do for a living. They Mm -hmm. are voice actors. It is Mm -hmm. a different skill set to to live action acting. I mean, and there are some people who can cross over and do both Mm -hmm. wonderfully well, but I think they are different skill sets. And if you're going to make a great animated film, get the best voice actors you can. It's like if you're making a video game, there are people out there who make their living just voicing video game characters. Like your, your Nolan Norths of the world, your Tara Steele, she does animation as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, that's if you, it's almost such a big deal now when you've got Nolan Norths voicing the X and Y character in this film. You're like, oh, mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a selling point. Yeah. The fact that they've actually gone pure here and gone, no, we're going to get the best people involved Mm-hmm. And not necessarily just people whose faces we can stick on the fucking poster. Yeah. Well, that's it. I mean, you look at this list and, you know, they're, they're name, there's many names that I know, but none of them I would say, oh, yeah, they are true household names. Uh, Danny Elfman is probably the only real household name there. Chris Sarandon, there will be people who know him from his career and from his work, probably most famous for um, The the Princess Bride. Um, Catherine O'Hara, she's always associated with um, 80s and 90s Tim Burton, but she's never really kind of just hit the zeitgeist for... Uh, for a couple of different roles elsewhere. Um, Paul Rubens, he is a known name, but not a certainly not a particularly relevant name. In I mean, the, if you said Pee Wee Herman, that would probably yeah. get a lot more work. But exactly, I mean. yeah. Um, and then, you know, like I know Greg Proops because he's a great comedian, but you say that name to many people and they're sort of like, nah, fuck off, that's a made-up name. I don't know his name, but I, and I didn't know. I looked him up this afternoon. I'm like, oh, I know him. He's a tour here and do the comedy festival every year for a while. Yeah, yeah, he's he's big for big for that community. So it's I I love the fact that this is on every level a passion project where it clearly got made just because. Luckily enough, Tim Burton, during his time, brief time working for Disney and his success um, at Warner Brothers, which is a weird thing, um, he was able to go. Yep. I can get enough people together on enough, just enough money to make this passion project work. And bye. I'm going to let you guys just go off and make it. Pretty much. I mean, the, the word in the street, I mean, it's that we talked about touching on the earlier, but he didn't mm. actually have a lot to do with the actual production of this mm. film, other than writing resource material, being an executive producer, mm. having his name on a poster. Um, yeah. But the, uh, the word in the street, 
uh, from uh, just from what INDB says that he actually visited the set maybe a dozen times, maybe less. Wow. Um, so he was that busy. If you think about it, though, it's a very busy time for him. So he would have been coming. They started working on this in 1991. So remember, three years of animating this shit. Yeah. That does not come cheap. Um, so th- uh, three years, 91 they started. So he's coming off uh, Edward Scissorhands in 1990. 91, he would have been shooting probably uh, Batman Returns because that came out in 92. So he's shooting, yeah. editing, just um, promoting Batman Returns in there. And then in 94, he started, he made, he released um, Ed Wood. Yeah. So he would have probably been shooting that during 1993 when this film came out. Yeah. Um, so he, in the early 90s, it was a busy time. He was a very much, people forget what an in-demand director he was at the time. Oh, yeah. He was yeah. like, he was hot, red hot, because I mean, he's coming off Beetlejuice, Batman, Batman Returns, Edward Scissorhands. That's four smash hits in a row. Edward got a lot of Oscar attention as well when it came okay. out. Uh, and then he was, of course, hired mm-hmm. to film Superman Lives. Yeah. Um, and he was on that for God knows how long. And he mm-hmm. uh, Obviously, he was never released, but poor Kim, he still got paid. <laughs> Lucky man. Yeah. But okay, so Richard, about- Richard says Tim Burton is kind of a one trick pony with content. Oh, hello, Richard. Oh, hello, Richard. Um I would say that's kind of fair nowadays. I think that he spent that period that we were just talking about um actually going real gangbusters determined to get his voice out there into the world and his style of filmmaking and his style of storytelling done. I mean, um, the Pee-wee movies are just universally bizarre. Um, you look at Beetlejuice, that's weird and it is not a normal kind of movie. Batman was very different to all the other superhero style things that were being produced in and around that time. And everything arguably has been kind of, even modern day movie, uh, superhero movies are largely based on that kind of formula, um, particularly the Warner Brothers stuff, where they generally kind of weigh the villain a little bit more heavily than the hero, which is an odd thing to do. But you know, um, and then you go into his very kind of urban fantasy uh, fairy tale kind of stories. You've got this that he that was very heavily promoted. You've got uh, Sleepy Hollow and you've got Ed Wood, which is just a bizarre take on arguably the worst director of all time. So who would choose that as a topic of conversation? It's a, it's a bizarre choice, but he got his, you know, he got his brand out there. He's not really done much exciting since. I mean, I think personally, I think his last interesting movie was Big Fish. Um, but even then, that was a long time ago at this point. I like yeah. Sweeney Todd. Sweeney Todd was okay, but again, it was very safe. I guess so. I mean, a, a, a musical about a, 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 a serial killer? I mean, it's it's kind of a famous cult musical and if tim burton is gonna make a musical it's not gonna be your stock standard thing i i don't understand why he has gotten in bed with disney so much i mean i haven't watched dumbo but apparently it's solid but nothing particularly inventive what he did with charlie and the chocolate factory was weird what he did with planet of the apes was just stupid uh, he's, uh, none of it makes sense to me is new stuff and i think it just speaks to he's kind of run out of things to say but he's still making money so he's still well, getting I mean, off at work his most profitable film 
uh, he's ever made was made in 2010, which was Alice in Wonderland, which made all the monies. Yeah. Um, and I think it's an awful film. Um, yeah. And I think, remember, everyone has been going, of course he made Alice in Wonderland. Of course he, that's exactly what he would make. And it's going to be great. It's going to be cool. And Johnny Depp's in it. And, like, of course, Johnny Depp's stock has kind of dropped at a fairly rapid pace over the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, rightly or wrongly. Um, I would tend to agree with Richie, but I think, though, I think you're right. I'm agreeing with both of you. Why not both? Um, you know, he, he is kind of a one-trick pony these days, mm. and the kind of he has, he's going to have Helena Bonham Carter in it mm. or Johnny Depp, and it's going to be about the creepy outsider. Yeah. Probably a kid. Um, yeah. You know, but what he was doing in the late, in the 80s and 90s, though, was good shit. Like, I think he was... Yeah one of the most interesting guys doing stuff in, in Hollywood at the time. And yeah. he said, I think my favourite Tim Burton film is Ed Wood, which I think mm. is, you're right, makes absolutely no sense at that point in his career. Yeah, it was it was an entirely bizarre choice. It had fantastic collection of cast in there with Bill Murray being delightful. Um, but, yeah, it, it not, none of it made sense. It's like, oh, wait, what? You're doing a black and white movie about a terrible director who no one in modern society generally knows. Um, and y- what? Really? That's that's what... Okay, go for it. And he, he made his story and he did it. I think that we were kind of fortunate, um, our generation, because in that 80s, 90s period, we suddenly got this influx of really successful alternative directors come through. Like, you got... Um, Tim Burton, you got Quentin Tarantino, you got um, Robert Rodriguez coming out, you um, got some of the early stuff of Chris Nolan and some of the and Kevin Smith and these guys that just managed to hit just a certain style that mainstream cinema wasn't doing. It, it kind of lost its lost its way after repeated um, in decreasing sales from the stalwarts of. Um, Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger, who had kind of been the ultimate tentpoles of Hollywood for so many years. And then going through the late 80s and in, particularly in the 90s, their stock just crashed and burned. And suddenly everyone's going, okay, well, we don't know what movies people want. Oh, look, these indie guys are making some interesting things that people like. They're making them on a cheap budget. We can put those out and make money. Cool. Uh, yes, <laughs> but, you, know, you, you are right. It was, it was it was kind of the same in music in a way, like indie music yeah. sort of became the mainstream. If you look at Nirvana and the whole grunge thing, uh, mm-hmm. there's uh, alternative rock became mainstream rock. Um, yeah. Alternative music in the terms of hip hop was very niche before the 1990s, and before by the time the 1990s it was well on the way to where it is now, where I guess one would argue it is the most popular a contemporary genre of music but you yeah. know yeah before that it was it was you know very much in in the in the african american community or yeah very niche around the world yeah. whereas uh, indie films like indie filmmakers like tarantino and rodriguez and these kind of guys were very niche mm-hmm. and you're right they they being an auteur became cool yeah yeah um and you know burton Guess he played his partner though. I don't I think he might him on a very different track to those other guys because he kind of jumped on that studio bandwagon pretty fast and stayed there. Yeah, no, that's that's very fair. I think he found an environment where he's like, okay, I'm getting enough of my own personality into the movies. That's all I need to do, and I'm making good money. I enjoy what I do. 
Yeah. Why, why more? <laughs> uh, and I kind of feel like he's had so he, he's kind of looks at his kind of thing and goes, he's kind of done this film a couple of times. Yeah. Franklin Weenie, Corpse Bride. I mean, I know they all came from his head, so he can do whatever he wants, but I feel yeah. like it's diminishing returns now. Yeah. Um, fortunately, though, the word in the street is that um, you can see this on IMDb, but Disney wanted to produce a computer generated, um, computer uh-huh. animated sequel to this in the early 2000s. And uh, Tim Burton had to tell them to fuck off. Yeah. Um, so I think we should all be thankful for that. Though those points will be forfeited if Beetlejuice two comes to comes to be. Well, it's still saying that it's in pre production, and Tim Burton is still sla- is the only thing that Tim Burton is slated to direct at the moment. So that said, if you look at Quentin Tarantino's IMDb page, it still has him down for for Kill Bill three. And Kill it Bill three has been in bloody production in one way, shape, or form ever since uh, Kill Bill came out, right? And that mm-hmm. was that in 2004? Yes, I think. Something like that. So, yeah. like, I mean, that film is not bloody happening. He's not doing it. No. no. I mean, and if he doesn't do it, no one's I – mean, I, can you picture a world where there's a Kill Bill film directed by someone other than him? I mean, uh, that's crazy. I can imagine it because – we are in the remake culture environment. So there is going to become a point where someone is going to say, Hey, I want to do kill bill. And I mean, God's sake, basically kill bill is not particularly an original storyline. Anyway, they, he just put his own spin on it and he is incredibly, um, (laughs) he's got ridiculous amount of filmic knowledge. And he was able to kind of Frankenstein's monster, this weird, western eastern kung fu slash um old school cowboy-esque revenge plot thing that worked really well in the end but people are going to go all right yeah so i'm going to come up with basically kill bill i'm just going to call it something else i'm going to call it kill lord Chill frill. <laughs> um, isn't it interesting how this show always ends up back in Tarantino? That's my fault. Um, <laughs> so I think it is it, it's um it was a nice treat to go back to this film, and I can see how people enjoy it. I think mm. you see people how they can associate because he makes films about the outsider. Yes, and and back then that wasn't really something that happened very often. The outsider mm. was not worshipped or looked upon the same way they are. Today, yeah. I think I think it's easy to be an outsider today. I mean, it's a geek culture, right? Like, it's kind of cool to be a geek. And you, there is a whole, you know, segment of the market these days that really wants to sell shit to you if you're a geek. You know, the, the Harry Potter films became so big. And, you know, yeah. uh, Marvel is so big now. To be a comic geek is to be, you know, they, they really serve you on a platter. Um, the geeks inherited the earth. <laughs> they really did. But I, I think it's a different brand of outsider that, that, that Burton has written his film for. Yeah, um, but he, I can see how people look at it, and you know, someone like Sally who's stitched together, so she stitches herself back together on a regular basis. You can see mm-hmm. that as a metaphor for how people feel about their lives. Um, you know, being the the one who enjoys Halloween so much more than 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 Christ, in, uh, Christmas, and or someone who kind of stands on the outside and looks at something like Christmas and doesn't really understand, yeah, what it is. Um, I, I, I really. Can appreciate. I, I don't necessarily associate with any of the characters in this film in that way. Mm. That kind. Of, I think I'm a different brand of outsider. That I can really see how people would enjoy 
that because like you, 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 um, the amount of people I've met over the years who are obsessed with this film, it's crazy. Oh my god, yeah. I mean, this this movie came out in 1993, and you go to any comics convention, and there are people dressed up in this stuff. There are people walking around to this day with all of the paraphernalia of um, bags and t-shirts and hairpins and badges and all sorts of stuff from Nightmare Before Christmas. This is an enduring classic for so many reasons. Um, you can read into it and get out of it so as much as you really want. Um, I think that's always a testament to a phenomenal movie. I, I choose to believe this is a parable about um, cultural appropriation. There you go. I think and, uh, it's just about a guy who suddenly discovers Christmas. You can, you can subscribe to my blog for more. Uh, <laughs> uh, that, that's actually a Tumblr feed. <laughs> uh, I, my co-host and I did spend 45 minutes on Monday night discussing uh, gender relations and white privilege whilst discussing coming to America. So, Yeah, that's true. <laughs> just be glad you're not listening to that podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so... Where are we going after this? Good choice. Oh, man, I really should have actually planned something ahead. But you know what? I am going to go nice and simple. I'm going to follow Henry Selleck. Um, We are going to go to Coraline. Well, that's a nice choice because I've never seen this. Now, this is um, not only am I a huge fan of stop motion animation um, as my wonderful history with all of those movies has shaped me in every way shape and form but this is also based on one of my favorite author's works neil gaiman and um this is a delightful take on it and um i've started doing a masterclass with neil gaiman just just this week and he was talking about how it's so bizarre when people talk to him about what they got out of Coraline and how um it helped uh, the, he he um, analog, analogizes, I think, <laughs> is the word that it's. Um, like he was telling a story about how um, he stood on a yellow jacket wasp nest, <clears throat> and his kids were around, and he stood there and told them to run away because he knew that if he was to run after them as well, the wasps would follow him. Um, when he got home, he realized that he had dropped his glasses. And so he had to go back to the wasp where the wasp nest was. And he realized in that moment that he wasn't brave or um, he wasn't brave for standing still and letting his kids get away. He was brave for going back to known danger. And that's a, a good analogy of what happens in Coraline. Um, and it's amazing how people really latch onto that very simple, simple ethic. So um I think we're going to have some fun with this. I think it's, I think you're going to enjoy this. <laughs> it's nice to see a film I haven't seen before. Mm. I mean, I thought the same thing when I picked Death Machine, but, you know, we saw how that turned out. Um, <laughs> You've not had much luck, actually, in the last few. Like, you hadn't watched Brothers Bloom before. You didn't like it. We hadn't watched Death Machine. We didn't like it. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I make it sound like I don't like Lightman Before Christmas. I think it's fine. I just, like I said, I enjoy the, the technical aspects sort of, and the, the, the mm. singing really bothers me in this. It's just a little bit too musically. Mm. Um, and there's not enough edge for me in this. I, like I said, I really, whereas, to go back to what you said, I like Sweeney Todd. <laughs> I like the songs in that. I think I like the songs in Sweeney Todd more. See, you're just, you're just difficult. I am. Um, <laughs> I am, I am a curmudgeon. And I, if I'm going to be a curmudgeon, I'm going to curmudge. You're the curmudgeon. I'm the contrarian. 
There, if you, here we go. And the man, the contrarian that kills video games. You haven't been playing Marvel's Avengers, have you? Because that's no, I have not. <laughs> I'm not I sure I believe you because it's it's following a very Anthem-esque path. Um, no, I have not been uh, playing it at all because I looked at it, and even though it's got some of my favorite voice actors in it with Travis Willingham and Laura Bailey, um, I just look at it and go, Nah, that's got a lot of bells and whistles of oh i can be x character i can be i can do this and it looks pretty but after that it's kind of like all right wait i've done this dance before anthem it looks pretty it's fun flying around like iron man for a while and then you realize wait i've been doing the same thing for nothing for hours now Ugh. And you know what? As of November 10th, I can go back and play Anthem if I want because EA Play comes to Xbox Game Pass Ultimate. So if I want a game where I can fly around just like Iron Man and do nothing of consequence, I'll just do that. Yeah, like I said, and haven't they re- maybe they've released some new parts to it. I don't know. Maybe. Um, Who knows? But um, no one knows. There's there's not anything in this world that could tell us what, what the new state of Marvel's Avengers is going to be like at all. No. I was going to say, though, that in November we do get Cyberpunk, so I wouldn't be going back. Yeah, that is that is on the horizon, and I am oh, I'm really looking forward to it. Really, I don't think that'll be a Game Pass. <laughs> no, but it's yeah. Come on, I'm going to get it. <laughs> I know. I, I, I was like you're saying, it would be nice if it was on Game Pass, but no, we have to put up with the old stuff for now. Yeah. Um, that's something we look forward to mm-hmm. next week. Coraline, mm-hmm. haven't seen it before. I, I, I'm keen to, to see something something new and maybe something like you like. I like the film I watched on the weekend, for a matter of fact, listening to mm-hmm. King for a Day to find out what that was. Um, but um, what else have you been up to this week? Uh, this week I consumed season one of, I presume, more, but nothing has been confirmed yet, of the new Netflix, no, not Netflix, Amazon series, Utopia which is in fact a remake of a British dark sitcom, uh, dark parody um, dystopian future-based series. And it's weird for a change. Could we? Um, I can't really tell. So I'm just going to pull up the list of who is in it. Uh, where are Utopia... So the headline performer in it is someone who I haven't seen in a movie in a long time, John Cusack. Um, And then the rest of the cast is generally very young and a lot of people who I don't really know. The only other two people in it that particularly stood out was Rain Wilson um, from Super and uh, The Office, of course, and Corey Michael Smith who played a surprisingly delightful Riddler in the Gotham series. I would like to call out here, though, mm. there is a name in here which stands out to me straight away mm-hmm. uh, and is worth mentioning, and that is um, Fiona DeRiff. And, yes, she's Brad's daughter. Oh, yes, yes, that's right. Yes, yes, I looked into that um, afterwards, yes, um, which is which is a kind of interesting connection. And... The the character of Fiona DeRiff, uh, character of Fiona DeRiff, the character of Kara, who Fiona DeRiff plays, is a really interesting character, and then nothing happens. So it's really annoying because I watched her. She was also in the um, 
the new version of um, Dirk Gently, Holistic Detective Agency on Netflix, I think it was. And she was really awesome in that. She was crazy. There was She went full derif. It was wonderful. <laughs> but in this, she doesn't get that opportunity, which is a big, big, big shame. Um, for those who don't know, okay, so Utopia is about a group of young adults who meet online, get a hold of a cult underground graphic novel, which not only pins them to a, uh, pins them as a target of a shadowy deep state organization, but also burdens them with the dangerous task of saving the world. It's really weird, and it skirts that undifficult line of comedy thriller suspense scary element and a lot of it is un I, i'm pretty sure it's accidentally um poignant to the current environment like there's a plague that is spreading a pandemic as they call it and it is affecting the kids and there's like people protesting outside and um unusual sort of like life imitating art imitating life thing going on there but the reasons why everything happens, you don't really get any satisfying solutions. And it ends on this very nebulous um, point. And it's like, okay, wow, you just spent eight 50-minute episodes just basically introducing me to the world that's a long ass time nothing gets resolved nothing there's there's no twist on it that's sort of like oh fuck what's going to happen next it's like okay so what things keep going as they did it's it's really really weird because there's there's good performances there's nothing inherently bad about the show and there are elements of it that are intriguing and that are interesting and do compel you to kind of watch through but at the same time, I've come out of it and gone, wait, what happened? What was what was in that episode? No, that oh, oh yeah, that didn't matter. So um, and you just end up kind of it's a it's a lot of empty calories, I guess. <laughs> no, no payoff. No, no. And the reason that John Cusack's character gives for doing things that he does in the show, it's like, okay, that's 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 not scary because have you seen the original uh no unfortunately not and um i don't really want to go back to it because it's two seasons and it was supposed to have a third and final season but it got cancelled before then so again it would just end with no resolution so again i would still feel really frustrated and annoyed how would you recommend it though? um no, no, I wouldn't, because there's some action in it, but it's not very good. Um, it's, you know, when after the action sequences of things like Daredevil and the Punisher and, hell, even the uh, clumsy action sequences in um, stuff like Brooklyn Nine-Nine, for God's sake, it's... It's nothing special. It's not pushing the bar. It's not trying to be compelling or insightful or interesting in any way. It's just, yeah, um, this happens. It's always just this 
kind of feeling of oh that happened because of that at least with something like uh dirk gently there's weird shit happening all the fucking time but you do get this sense of oh it is connected okay it is connected it is connected and it does kind of come around on itself a lot ultimately that's not a great show but it does a better job of balancing that weird that creepy that comedy much better than this does um and I can't see this getting another series because it's not getting very good reviews. It's 6.7 on IMDb, which I think is on the high end a little bit. I would probably have put it maybe a low six being ge- generous. Um, but it's, it's a shame because there's a, there's an interesting premise there and there's good performance there's good production value in it everything about it is good but it never ever gets interesting to a point where there was not a single end of an episode where i said like fuck okay i've got to watch the next one because i cannot wait eight hours to go to sleep and then find out what happens next i i was happy just to pause and just go yep i'll get back to that um that's not high praise that is not high praise so you're not um it uh, it kind of sounds to me like a lot of um, a lot of streaming service shows these days mm. do sort of do that. Like we can get by almost like we'd slide by with high production values, yeah, and some decent so, solid source material, and you know we can, you know, a bit of intrigue and some good looking actors, and you'll tune in for the next one because it'll just do it for you automatically. You don't even have to pick up a remote, yeah. Um, so I find so many shows that kind of go, that's an interesting premise. Mm. Uh, I really, I think the original, or I like the original TV show or whatever. And you tune in, you go, I don't know if I want to watch any more of this. That's exactly how it felt. And that was, I don't hate it. It's just like, you know, honestly, I started to get there with Watchmen. It was like it was fine. I liked the source material. It started with something interesting, but at the end of every episode, I'm like, a bit like you said, you're like, do I really want to watch another one of these? Yeah, I could, I could go stand at the front and watch people walk past my house. That might be more interesting. Yeah, it's it's a real shame because if they're willing to put, because you look at these shows and they've clearly got money behind them or at least very competent production crew who make it look like there's a lot of money behind them. And so it's like, okay, really? They, they weren't able to punch up the script and make it that little, go, go that little bit further to push it somewhere just a little bit more interesting. And they just, they, they, it's, it's, it's just, no, they trundle across the line. So like, Oh yeah, that'll do. I my my main takeaway from this is I really hope mm. that people looking for this end up watching the Australian series Utopia instead by mistake. <laughs> okay, what's Utopia? Have you never? Oh, it was um uh, I I could describe it to you, but I don't think you'd understand it. <laughs> you have to be you, have to, you seriously need a high IQ to no. Um, it um you, you probably never heard of Rob Sitch or Santo Chilaro or Tom Glasner or no Jane. The guys who you, I'm sure I made you watch the castle. Yes, those guys. Okay. Um, Working Dog uh, is their production company's name. Right. So they are um, a comedy set inside the offices of a nation-building authority 
a newly created government organization responsible for overseeing major infrastructure projects. So kind of um, an Australian version of The Office. Okay. But, but funny. Okay. And not cringy. Um, and actually good. Um, so I, I don't know if you'd enjoy it very much. It's very dry. Okay. Very dry, very droll. Okay. Uh, no fourth wall breaking shit like in the office, mm. but uh, it's kind of like um, it's kind of like a little bit of uh, somehow shining a tiny little bit of the off- spirit of office space, right? Because everyone I know who's ever worked in a in a large organization with like or a bureaucracy of any kind just what gets fucking triggered as fuck watching it. <laughs> like, <laughs> like you know, I used to like I used to watch this with a colleague and I worked at. Um, the logistics company of its um, name rhymes with Shoal. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we would be texting each other during the show going, oh, my God, that's what totally happened last week. That was the meeting we had last week. <laughs> How did they get a camera in there? Um, <laughs> it's so on point with okay. like how large organizations and government departments run, and it's so good. Um, it's 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 got a it's got an eight point three on IMDb. So I mean, like if it's on the ABC. Sometimes ABC produces it here in Australia. So okay. I had no idea how you watch it. If I ever find it, I will send it to you. Yeah. Um, but I just I just love the idea that Americans in particular will go looking for Utopia and somehow end up watching this Australian show about people who work for a government <laughs> department and they just have no fucking idea what's going on. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, I'm going to keep an eye out for Aussie Utopia. Um, Utopia. Uh, there was one other thing that I did actually watch this week. I'll just, just a quick call out. I'm not going to talk about it too much. But it is um, the 1997 James Mangold Copland. Ah, oh, this is the one that everyone suddenly said, hey, uh, so Mr. Stallone's actually a good actor. It no, <laughs> this this is not a, a a movie to really herald as. Hey, he's an act- actually a good actor. Now this is this is one where he shows that he can actually show subtlety for sure, definitely. People people forget he won an Academy Award for Rocky. Yeah, he was a good actor, a good writer, and a good director. He just chose to make money instead. Yeah, that's fair. But this was um. Actually, a really good film. It's a, a, a solid film from at that point before his X Men um, defining um, uh, Logan movie and things like that. James Mangold is he's he's a solid director even from from early on. I think um, it's got one hell of a cast too: Sylvester Stallone, Harvey Keitel, Ray Liotta, Robert De Niro, Peter Berg, Gianni Garofalo. Uh, it's there's a lot of sort of like, oh shit, wow, they they pull together a very interesting eclectic group, especially with the uh, Gianni in there as well. So, like, I only really know her as a comedy actress, most notably from the classic Mystery Men. Oh, uh, I always thought of Janine. Uh, oh yeah, Janine. J- J- Janine, yes, yes. I, I thought that was. I could be wrong. Do, do correct us if I'm pronouncing yeah. her name. Yes, absolutely. Um, but it's it's. It's a great movie, and it was another sort of like solid performance from uh, Robert De Niro. Peter Berg was 
typical Peter Berg in anything he ever acts in. I think he's a mildly better director, but even then it's touch and go. Um, Harvey Keitel. Hey, he made Battleship. Yes. <clears throat> unfair, unfair fake news. Mm-hmm. Sad. Um, Harvey Keitel is solid in it as well. Um, it's got uh, Robert Patrick in it, and he is cool. He's very good in it. Um, Ray Liotta is kind of the steel, uh, steel of the the whole thing. He's just He's, he plays this great character. He puts so much depth and interest into it, and you can't help but kind of root for the guy because he he just plays the part so well. And I really enjoyed it. It's a kind of a simple story, but um, it I I do have to put one negative on Copland though, and because it has an interesting performance of Ray Liotta, I think that is the reason why I went and watched Hubie Halloween. What's that? That is the new Adam Sandler terrible movie on Netflix. Okay. It is a... Why do you do this to yourself? I do this so that other people don't have to. Some, that Joe Blow posted about it saying, hey, have you seen this? And someone posted, oh, this looks like it could be a good movie. I had to step in. I had to take that bullet for someone, and I did. And, oh, boy, that... that yeah, we have reached a new low in Adam Sandler's efforts. Well, I mean... Don't watch it, you know, anyone. I, do not I, watch I, it. It's got a five on IMDb. Yes, and I do not fucking trust it. Because there are obviously people who just love Adam Sandler in movies. I actually... You don't know, meet people and they tell me how much they enjoy him. It's really actually a very difficult thing. To, for me to manage because you got to try and be not be you don't want to put people offside yeah. the first time you meet them and they say I fucking love Adam Sandler he's so funny and you go yes there are there are many people who believe he's funny mm-hmm. yep it's and I, it, it's <laughs> you can't just come out and go you've got a very poor sense of humor <laughs> it's like he was once it's not I disagree I've never enjoyed the only as I always say I'm ad nauseum. The only Adam Sandler film I ever enjoyed was the one that all Adam Sandler fans hate. Yeah, that's 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 fair. That's my favorite as well. But I, you know, there's there's some points where he actually there was a there was a level where he reached where he's like, I don't, I'm not going to put any effort into this. So that meant that he wasn't putting any effort into trying to make it bad. I think that he is legitimately with Hubie Halloween, which should have just been called Halloween Hubie. It rolls off the tongue better. Still a terrible name, still a terrible movie, but Halloween Hubie would make more sense. It would be better. Um, Halloween Hubie, it feels like he is purposely trying to push as bad as he possibly can. He talks with a, with a voice like this the whole movie, and you can't really understand what he's saying. But it's, you know, it's supposed to be funny because it just keeps on going on and on and on and on and on. And, you know, he's, he's for a change, he's t- playing a guy who is misunderstood in society because he's a nice guy who happens to have a speech impediment and is a virgin at 47 or whatever he is. It's like, come on, you've played this part. Fuck off. Get out of town. Kind of sounds like... You know what would be fascinating to see if him in a remake of being there. He could do that because he he could do that. chops. He could do that. Um, because that's a great fucking movie. Yeah, and we could. I mean, that's kind of what you're saying, right? Like, there's. I mean, that movie's about Peter Sellers, who everyone thinks is a simpleton because yeah. he talks kind of funny. Yeah, and he ends up, you know, everybody sort of builds their own world around him. 
being something he's not yeah. because of the way he is. And like, you know, if I'd, hopefully he'd do a better accent than that, <laughs> but you know, as someone who plays like a, 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 a mildly retarded man child with anger problems, you know, that character would fit. Yeah. Yeah. That would, that would fit. And you know, it's, um, it was a great career high for Peter Sellers. Maybe it could be another career high for Adam Sandler, which I hate the fact that we are simulating Peter Sellers and Adam Sandler together because Peter Sellers is infinitely better than Adam Sandler. Uh, I mean, he had that Uncut Gems film at Everybody Like this year, but I hate it. So, I mean, I'm sure he doesn't actually need one. Yeah. I mean, I'm, he's getting paid super dollars by Netflix to make this awful shit. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But it is yet another terrible comedy that he has made for Netflix. He has not made a single good horror movie uh, or comedy for Netflix. And the the thing that really stings about um, this Hubie Halloween is the fact that it has got all of the stereotypical um, Adam Sandler troop with it. And so you realize very quickly, oh, wait, every single one of these people was actually able to be in a fun children's Halloween horror-based movie. They are in the um, Hotel Transylvania series. And... Steve Buscemi is in this movie and he plays someone who thinks that he's a werewolf. He played the fucking werewolf and that, and uh, they, they basically got everyone to essentially do the same roles, but it's just not funny except for a change. Adam Sandler speaks with a Transylvanian accent and they need to be like this. It's lazy, lazy filmmaking, and that's it's, um, it's awful. Yeah. It's awful. Uh, it's half of a course now, right? Yeah. Hey, he's he's worked out how to make a shit ton of money and apparently remain relevant because it's one of the most downloaded or watched uh, movies on Netflix. Because it's got his name on the front, brand. It's about brand. Adam Sandler. I know Adam Sandler. I'll watch that. Yeah, I think we're very much at that point in quarantine where people are just determined to consume something new in TV or movies. And it's like, oh, that's new. I'll watch it. Well, I'm very excited because it's mm-hmm. Friday, uh, I believe, on Prime in Australia. We have the new – if it's Prime or Stan, there'll be a series, a, an adaptation of Brave New World. Oh, right? yes. That's so right. I love that book. It's one of my yeah. favorite books. So I am, on the one hand, excited to see it, but also mildly apprehensive that they've done a really shite job of it. Um, only one way to find out. So I will hopefully have some time to check out an episode or two. Yeah. And we can talk about that next week. Cool. All right. Well, that is the show for this week, ladies and gentlemen. We talked about The Nightmare Before Christmas. We're going to be going on to the um, wonderful classic of Coraline. I talked about the Amazon new series Utopia and talked a little bit about Copland and how that got me into Hubie Halloween and our great uh, and hope it kind of hope it happens idea of being there um, uh, maybe we'll send his agent a note and go hey you know we can produce it i got no idea what a producer does but hey <laughs> recycled idea buy <laughs> pay me money that, that would just be our credit <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for watching along and thank you for listening to the podcast. This will um, go up on podcast services as I'm trying to get usual on Sundays. Um, Thank you very much. Good night.